Today on the show, we have Scott Rosenbaum. He is the vice president of T. Edward Wine and Spirits. A quick side note, uh, these podcasts are remote now, so the sound quality of our guests is going to vary depending on what kind of microphone they use. Um, we're doing our best to get the levels um, you know, situated so that we're all sounding like we're on the same kind of tone. But you know, um, if somebody's using a pair of wired headsets versus a USB versus just using the microphone in their computers, you know, it's all going to sound different. So I hope you can bear with us, but I think the conversation um, will speak for itself and is totally worth it. Scott has developed the Spirits portfolio for T. Edward from the ground up. So we go into detail about how they went about doing it and how they forge partnerships with brands and producers super interesting conversation. We also touched on the concept of terroir as it relates to wine and also as we can relate it to agave spirits, which is an imperfect process. Um, you, you, you can't make a distinct parallel between the two plants. It's, it's, there's just too many factors that are different, but I think it's a constructive conversation nonetheless and one that I hope that we can continue to pursue. Um, so thanks for listening. And if you can rate and review us on Apple podcasts, drop us a line, hola at tuyo.nyc, DM us, all those good things. Um, so thanks for listening again, everyone. And here is our conversation with Scott Rosenbaum. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Hey, Hey, Agave. Today, we have with us Scott Rosenbaum, who is the vice president of T. Edward Wine and Spirits. Hello, Scott. Hello. Hello. Hi. And Gabrielle is with us, um, separated in the other room for these remote podcasts now. Hi, Gabs. It's amazing. I'm under a teepee. Yeah, we're definitely going to have to post some pictures of how we've creatively found a solution to separate ourselves in a very small New York City apartment. Um, well, you guys, thanks so much for being together today on a Saturday. Uh, although, do days matter anymore? I'm not really Every sure. Every day is just a day. I know. <laughs> it's like if you if you can have some sort of a schedule where you're waking up at a decent hour to get a quote unquote work day in, I think that we have successfully had a good day. Um, so Scott, uh, I would love to also say this, um, not only are you working with T. Edward Wine and Spirits, but you're also a professor and lecturer, correct? That's correct. Um, okay. What does that look like for you these days? Were you set to teach this semester? I, I am teaching this semester, um, at a few different, uh, institutions, uh, a food and, and culture class at Hudson County Community College that is moved entirely remotely, uh, as well as uh, some wine and spirit classes at the International Wine Center. And that has been very eye-opening. Um, we use Zoom for that. So tastings uh, are not occurring, which they usually do with a little bit more lecture and discussion about wine regions and uh, spirit appellations, uh, but without the, the tasting component as that's difficult to wrangle remotely getting getting the same bottle or wine and spirit in everybody's hand at the same time that'll just have to wait till till this time of social distancing ends yeah or come up with some clever solutions of how to get those um you know one ounce or two ounce bottles out to people right yeah 
yeah, it's it's the the you know the idea that uh, working remotely is, is easier because you don't have to put your pants on and leave the house. Totally doesn't take into the effect uh, to take into account all the the notion of getting everything online, figuring out how to work differently, and that goes for 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 you know my day job. Uh, as, as vice president of an importing and distribution company in wine and spirits as well. Oh, I can only imagine. I mean, we're all trying to get creative um, in in our own respective ways, you know, and, and this is forcing us to do it in a way that we never anticipated. And I mean, I don't know about you, but it's every day, it's a little bit different. And there's like, I can see progress if I look back five weeks ago to where we are now. Um, but it's still, it just, there's no way, shape or form that it feels like this is a solid solution. No, but look at the skills that we've all developed, right? You can now, you can now uh, podcast remotely. <laughs> we're in two different states <laughs> where we're all in different spaces. And yeah. uh, now, you know, now, now maybe this is something you take on after the fact and you're recording with people in Mexico while you're in New York. Yeah, I mean, that is actually a really exciting prospect for us that we are working on. Um, so hopefully we'll we'll have some of those episodes um, in the bag soon enough. Um, but with regards to your uh, kind of the origin story of how you got involved in the wine and spirits world, um, you know, let's let's have a little bit of a background. Where Where did you study? What did you study? I know that you had mentioned to me as a child, you guys did travel to Mexico quite a bit. Yeah. I mean, again, it depends how far you kind of want to go back, but it's not something I talk about often, but it was certainly influential in in how I think about Mexico and and perhaps drinking as well. But um, I was very fortunate to have parents that took us on on family vacations. Um, You know, instead of going to uh, Disney World, you know, we went to we went to Mexico. We went to Cancun before it was a theme park. Um, in the the early '90s, we went to Tulum before it was Tulum. Um, yeah. uh, you know, uh, all over the Yucatan with with some regularity, such that I had been to it perhaps half a dozen times before I was was 21. Playa del Carmen, Cozumel. It's it's likely where I had my first shot of tequila, where, where I probably didn't <laughs> even know it was tequila. I, I distinctly remember. What was a, a pretty, if not not offensive, uh, mixed drink called a, a Mexican flag that was a combination of tequila, grenadine, and creme de menthe, that, so that you oh, had the, the, red, the red, white, and green. Uh, and they'd float 151 rum and, and set it aflame, and you'd sip it through a straw. Um, I'm, I'm happy to say that I probably my my taste have evolved happily. You know, we've all started somewhere, <laughs> but for um, sure. <laughs> I took away such an appreciation for um, this place that was, you know, uh, visibly it looked the same, but the culture was was so different. There, there, there was a, a distinct humbleness, and gratitude um, in the people, um, uh, a respect for for the land, for the place um, that really just stuck with me. When I'm in Mexico, I feel comfortable with the people. With the, the customs, with the with the, the food, the beverage, the history, and I think that's really what was informed during those those early trips because I visited all those times when I was you know a, a teenager or younger and didn't really return until after you know I was uh, about thirty years old. 
Um, mm. And then I was really wowed by the diversity uh, of of cultures and regions within. Um, you know, if you go to you know Italy or China, there is no such thing as Italian food, right? It's the regional food. There's no such thing as uh, Chinese food. There's Sichuan, right? There's Cantonese. Um, and I was wowed by the notion that such uh, complexity existed within Mexico as well. What you get in Guanajuato is not what you get in Puebla, is not what you get in Durango, is not what you get in Jalisco, so forth and so on. And that's really driven a lot of my exploration of, of Mexico through, through agave-based drinks. Which kind of leads me to, to build upon, okay, so you spent your childhood traveling. Um, sounds like your, your parents were, um, were in, in a really cool space that they liked Mexico so much to keep going back. Um, so, so that's really interesting. And then you studied in New York City. Um, and was that like a liberal arts degree it, it, program? It was a liberal, liberal arts degree. I went to um, New York University but a, a specific um, college there called uh, Gallatin. And Gallatin mm-hmm. um, was the, the College of Individualized Study. In the, in the 70s, it was called the University Without Walls. Um, which That's so some, 70s. <laughs> so <laughs> 70s. It gives you some notion of, of what they were trying to do, which is um, uh, not a, a discipline-based um, in terms of a rigorous uh, academic uh, singular discipline. You know, you don't go to that school to study mathematics or the Italian language, but you could go to that school to study the intersection of those two things. The, mm-hmm. you know, hence the name interdisciplinary or uh, individualized study. So I went to this school to try to study some combination of, of film, media, graphic arts, but... Um, in so much as the school allowed the freedom to explore different concentrations and, and interests, I took a, a, a class there um, in 2003 uh, called Beverages 101. And it, it's one of those points in, in my life that I can point to as distinctly, you know, affecting which fork in the road I took. I took that class and I fell in love with all things alcohol in a way that most college students um, perhaps don't. It wasn't just a, being appreciative of, of becoming inebriated and t- intoxicated, um, mm-hmm. but it was it was wine and spirits from an academic standpoint. It was armchair traveling. It was learning the history of, of places, um, the development of Appalachians, the different tastes of different places, um, and that sent me on my path nearly uh, let's see, seventeen seventeen years ago. Um, yeah. I got a job at a wine store being a cashier because that was the entry into the, the trade for me. I, I, I had no interest in, in restaurant work or bartending, no experience there. So I was a, a liquor store clerk for, for two or three years. So you are clerking at a wine store and I guess you're finishing your undergraduate degree. Is that correct? Correct. Um, I finished my undergrad degree and I'm basically looking for different jobs. Um, I see that I... Uh, might be able to uh, work at a new up-and-coming retailer. Um, I apply for a job at Sotheby's Auction House to work in their wine department. And I uh, see that there's a job posting at this institution called the International Wine Center, 
which is where I took some wine and spirit classes. And ultimately that, that's the route I took. And, um, it was a route that allowed me to really thoroughly explore wine and spirits and come in contact with every aspect of the industry because this was a nexus for publicists, wine and spirit importers, distributors, retailers, restaurateurs, uh, bartenders. So I was there for, for six years and that's really where I uh, kind of paid my dues. Uh, what year, what year is this? What what this year are we talking about? Two thousand five. Okay. Uh, just to just to have a reference because you know a lot of things happen really fast. Two thousand five. Um, the economy is booming. Uh, uh, wine lists are are you know bible bible length. Um, it's a good industry to be in at that time. Um, interest is, is uh, you know just going through the roof. Um, I'm there for six years, at which time I see uh, everything take a nosedive with the the Great Financial Recession. Uh, uh, 2008, everybody. <laughs> oh, the first one. Yeah. 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 So, you know, not a lot of people... Not for us. <laughs> ...want to take wine classes or spirits classes or are able to afford to. Um, the people from Wall Street uh, that might have had a burgeoning interest in those topics are now just worried about where they're going to get their next paycheck from. Um, luckily, people did still take classes, but it was an interesting time because you see people come to appreciate that you can still enjoy um, wines and spirits without having to spend a boatload of money, that you can still explore these topics without having to go out to a $1,000 meal. Um, mm -hmm. So I see kind of both sides of the coin pretty early on in my career. And well, it's an interesting it's an interesting topic because just of where we find ourselves at the moment, um, and I'm sure as you know, kind of a, a young person starting their career, really investing themselves um, in a discipline, you know that you that you wanted some longevity in. Um, just like maybe some younger kids now, you were probably thinking, okay, what am I going to do with this? How am I going to position myself so that I can maintain a career here? With this, with this change, do you see that the off-premise shifted from, you know, you're talking about a thousand dollar meal. That means there's a service, there's a restaurant, there's a whole industry set up to, for you to allow you to spend that kind of money on, on, on a bottle of wine somewhere. But then did the 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 economy force the people to go back to the liquor stores and do their own research and kind of like uh, become more uh, educated on what they were gonna drink? Do you think that there was a shift by by not having the same uh, paying power? Yeah, when when you're forced, and it's it's very um, the moment we're in is it, it speaks very much to this, right? It's yeah. so much less performative when you're in financial straits, when the world looks like it's crumbling apart. If you're pursuing these topics, even during those times, it shows that you're doing it for its own sake because of your passion. Um, it's, it's a great way of weeding out those people who want to be superstar sommeliers for the sake, sake of, of performance, for the sake of one-upsmanship. Um, Versus those people who want to learn for the sake of learning, share for the sake of sharing and helping others um, become better at what they do. So in this time of like 
financial crisis, um, what was going through your head? What moves were you making? Like, what were you focusing on during during this first recession in 2008? Sure. Um, I was still working at the, the wine school, but as my time went on there, I, I wanted to explore different options. This is around the time where I do make a transition from wine to, to spirits. Um, wine felt a little bit more of a crowded space. Spirits was still in its nascent stage, um, such that, you know, in 2005, there were around 25 craft distilleries in the United States. Um, maybe 2010, you have about double that, roughly. And we've seen that certainly spike. Um, now, these distilleries that I refer to as craft distilleries in the U.S. are, are popping up. Of course, in Mexico, the, the Palenque have always been around to, to some greater or lesser extent. But certainly, my awareness of them did not begin to occur until around this time when I make the distinct decision to really focus on on spirits. So I start working in retail um, and buying wines and spirits, learning that end of the trade. And I, I happen upon one of my, my vendors, uh, T. Edward Wines at the time. Um, and I happen to meet the owner and we have a really great discussion over dinner. And he invites me back to the office the next day. And I think he just wants to pick my brain about tequila and vodka and spirits and what it all means. And we talked for about two, two hours. Um, Tom Burns and, and Peter Cassell, uh, Tom, the owner of the company, and Peter, the gentleman, his right-hand man. And um, at the end of, of our discussion, uh, Tom goes, this is great. Do you have a resume? And... Um, I thought to myself, whoa, I just spoke with them for two hours and didn't realize this might have been a, a job interview. Those um, are the best kind. <laughs> exactly. So um, uh, Hurricane Sandy hits. And three months after that, I'm offered a position to, to start a spirits portfolio at a wine company. Um, now, this was a big... Oh, so you, you were feet on the ground. You developed this. And this is brand new. There's yeah. nothing... There's not, oh, for them, there's nothing that. selling yet. Yeah, like, we, They were we, just we, on the wine. The company had only sold wine until that point. So um, uh, this is 2013 now. Um, I meet them in 2012. I'm hired 2013. So for 19 years, the company had only sold wine. The company was founded in 1994. I come on board 2013, and I'm kind of thrown into the deep end. I, I know spirits, but I don't know importing. I don't know distribution. Luckily, they know that for wine, and a lot of the same ideas are applicable. Um, when it comes to logistics and uh, sales, but I need to, you know, acquire a portfolio, reach out to producers. I need to uh, get the sales team on board. If you're a, a quote unquote wine person, you know, are you the type of person that necessarily wants to sell mezcal? You know, uh, nowadays that 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 very often is the case. A lot of people draw parallels between the two, but six seven years ago. Not necessarily. Some people readily accepted that challenge and other people you had to drag them into the idea that you could sell more if you sold both wine and spirit. And at this yes. time, at this time, you're just starting with tequila and mezcal where you started just with mezcal. What, what was the first combo of, of spirits that, that you guys choose to, to start developing? Sure. The, the first combination of spirits, we started with uh, five producers at the time. And I'd say the driving idea was was diverse and local where, where where possible. So we had a vodka producer, we had a gin producer, 
a whiskey producer, a uh, rum producer, and a tequila producer. Um, they were easy to work with. They were um, easy to communicate because at that point, I wasn't yet traveling down to Mexico to find uh, a new supplier. Uh, I wasn't yet uh, traveling to uh, Italy to try to find an Amaro. Uh, so I was doing what was easy. Even the tequila we were working with at the time, um, a wonderful brand called Suerte, was imported by the supplier themselves. We were just picking it up um, okay. from their warehouse in Colorado. I was one step removed. Um, and this is kind of how I approached putting together this portfolio, which was uh, with a certain amount of humbleness and understanding that I would never be the expert in every topic, but I would try to find those people that knew more than me. So how, how has this philosophy evolved um, since 2013? Well, <laughs> that's an excellent question. Uh, I mean, the first thing was the recognition that I needed to have a philosophy. Um, mm -hmm. And here... I was able to draw from those wine and spirit importers that I really respected. Um, here I'll name names, Kermit Lynch, uh, Neil Rosenthal, um, Andre Tamer, the V-Maison Selection. These were all um, wonderful importers um, that they were transparent, they were honest, they had a set of values. And I realized that if I wanted to put together a portfolio of a very diverse number of wine and spirits, you know, vodka and mezcal, uh, whiskey and rum, things that um, broadly speaking went together, but needed a, a common theme to unite them. I needed to develop kind of a, a declaration of, of values, which I'd seen so many other wine importers use. So that's kind of what I got together doing. Um, and the company still had this. We talk about uh, about six different things we're really looking for in those uh, producers, those distilleries, those palenques that we work with. Uh, scale of production, transparency, minimal manipulation, terroir, friendly people, and, and local ownership. Um, the notion that we would only work with local spirits would have limited us to New York State or the tri-state area. What I what I come to learn and believe is that um, if you're going to work with a tequila, you should work with a tequila producer that's based in Jalisco, not an American uh, company that just imports, uh, you know, a private label tequila. Um, that certainly serves its function for many people, but that's not the, the type of, of business that I wanted to do. Likewise, if we're going to work with uh, a mezcal, it shouldn't be a brand created by a marketing agency. Um, again, that has its place, uh, certainly in introducing a lot of, of um, new drinkers to certain categories. But for us, we wanted to work with, uh, you know, the mescalero that lived in the place where they were producing it. So it, in forging these partnerships and these relationships with the brands and the producers, did you guys start getting involved in importing as well? Or were you just focused on the distribution end? Excellent. Um, Point. So we started out just as a distributor um, with regard to spirits because um, it was easier for me to learn the ropes, logistically speaking. But um, 
as soon as you start doing that, you um, fall prey to a number of, of, of issues. You're not necessarily going to find the most cutting edge things if they're already being imported. You're also going to have more trouble eking out uh, substantial living from due to the fact that there's another middle person um, needing to take a cut. If you we are, talk about the three-tier system often on this podcast. <laughs> it's, it's, it's both a wonderful and horrible system. Mm-hmm. But when you have someone who is both the importer and distributor, it does allow for um, an efficiency that means that ultimately the product can get to the end user for a little less price. And the people in the middle and at the beginning of the chain have a chance to take a slightly larger chunk when you're not cutting the pie up into as many pieces. So we started out as a, a distributor, and uh, it was long espoused by Tom, the owner of the company, that was wine. The way to do it was to also be the importer. So mm-hmm. I took it upon myself to learn the ropes, and that's when we began going direct to producers, such that we began importing tequila directly and mezcal directly. Who was who was your first, you know, your first uh, import import from Mexico? What, what so was your our, your first? Uh, our yeah. first, so you know, we we were fortunate in distribution to really align ourselves with some wonderful uh, producers. Amongst them, um, Distilleria Los Santantes that produces Los Nahales and Jalapus. But again, we weren't the importer; we were just the distributor. But it helped solidify our reputation, such that um, I was very fortunate in I want to say 2014 or 15 to uh, be in California, in Los Angeles, and be shopping at a a wonderful uh, store called uh, Barkeeper in Silver Lake. I think they've since moved. And I came across this uh, brand of tequila that I'd not seen before called Arete. And I tasted it. I loved it. I thought it was um, uh, true to what it was. It was an honest spirit. Um, It wasn't necessarily sexy. Uh, in terms of packaging, it looked um, a little dated, but I did some some research and found out that, you know, at Tommy's in, in San Francisco, this was the tequila that was used in the Tommy's margarita for some time. And I was amazed to find out that no one had ever imported this or distributed it east of the Mississippi. So huh. I reached out to the distillery and they were super friendly and we started talking. And before I knew it, we were we were importing them. And that was that was the beginning of um, really establishing our our reputation as a tequila uh, and mezcal and agave based importer and distributor. Um, since then, we have really grown the book significantly, adding one other tequila producer, uh, La Gratona, as well as a number of other mezcal producers, um, which include La Gramata Dolores, um, Barroso. Um, which is a uh, basically a, a negotiant or a a, a, a brand that's uh, kind of created by two women in Baja, but but produced out of Oaxaca. Um, we have Cinco Sentidos, um, Jason Cox, whom I know you both know. Um, we work with those. The Mescalero uh, from uh, from Craft Distillers, which also imports Alapus and Los Nahales. So we've, we've grown it pretty significantly. Yeah. And I think our listeners will remember if they've listened um, for a while now that we have had um, Herman from Lagrimas on and also Jason Paul Cox from Cinco Sentidos. Um, 
which kind of is this all like circuitously led to talking to you today. So it's, it's been a really wonderful evolution for us as well to, um, talk to some of the brands and producers that you work with and tangentially they'll wind up talking about what it's like working with you guys. Yeah. Um, it's, here's where the relationships matter because if you know one person, you have the capacity to know everyone that that person knows if you treat the relationship with respect and, um, and humbleness, um, you know, to this end credit where credit is due. Um, Herman of Lagrimas de Dolores, um, we'd met when he was on a, a trade mission, and it was actually my colleague, uh, John Bedell, who convinced me to take a chance because I was so conservative. I wasn't sure that, uh, you know, the greater market was ready for a mezcal from Durango or a bunch of mezcals from Durango. I was, you know, seemingly difficult enough to get people on board with mezcal. Uh, and also a non-economical mezcal because they started with a line that it was pretty high up. Yeah, ab absolutely. It was only a little later that they introduced their colonial line, their more introductory, introductory yeah. level. Um, same too with Cinco Sentidos. I had a uh, colleague named, uh, I have a colleague named Paul Boyer who really convinced me to speak with Jason, who he'd known through, um, uh, Noah of Claro. Um, so it's, 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 you know, establishing kind of a beachhead, uh, through one or two spirits and then, asking people who they know, who they respect, who they like to drink, because I, I don't live in Mexico. I'm, I don't have my finger on the pulse, but my job is to talk to those people who do. My job is to communicate with those people who do. I think it, it might be interesting um, because we did want to talk about Tawar today with you, Scott, that I just like to say um, right now, Gabrielle and I are sipping on a Lagrimas de Dolores uh, Castilla, which is an Angustifolia, but it's an Angustifolia that is endemic to specific region in Durango. Um, and this is a really good example. And for those of you that know or maybe don't, the Angustifolia is also the most common species. There are many kind of minute genetic variances and um, you'll also be familiar with espadine. So the espadine is from the angustifolia. So we're sipping on that today and it's just reminding me so much of like the difference between like what would be the most common species of agave used to make an agave distillate, but how different it can be once you leave Oaxaca and you travel to different regions in Mexico that are using, you know, the genetic, genetically similar plant. So it's classified scientifically as the same, but the flavor profile is completely different. Yeah. The, the concept of terroir is one that is so readily baked into European, particularly French and some extent Italian culture, though it's a concept that is applicable to the whole world when it comes to, to, to food, uh, to wine, to, to spirits, uh, to mezcal particularly. Um, and uh, terroir, French word, um, literally translates to land. Um, but what it means uh, essentially, is, its connotation is, is such that it means a sense of place. And here, I, I translate this um, in, in terms of making it practical into the, the notion that the place has an effect on, on the taste of a certain food or beverage. Uh, we can simplify it and use a really kind of absurd example and say, if you were going to have orange juice, would you prefer that the oranges came from Minnesota or Florida, right? And 
most people would, would readily associate Florida as the better producer of oranges because they can grow outside. Um, they don't need a greenhouse. Um, they're familiar with the fact that good oranges come from that warm uh, tropical environment or semi-tropical environment. Um, but when it comes to something like wine or mezcal, we can, we can get a little deeper and, 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 and a little bit more fine and say the Cabernet Sauvignon um, from this vineyard, even though it's adjacent to this vineyard just down the road, um, tastes different because of the soil. Or um, this agave at the top of this hillside um, gets um, a little bit more water than the agave at the bottom, where they have to struggle a little further. So maybe there's a greater concentration uh, and development of flavors, um, even though they're coming from the same region. Um, we can we can zoom in. We can get a little bit more detail. We're looking at it at a, a micro level. Um, the idea that the place affects the taste of something. Absolutely, and and with that, I, I mean, there's there's a whole list of concepts involved in just when we talk about the land itself, right? Like there's the elevation, there's like sun exposure, um, you know, temperature fluctuation or those diurnal shifts that people talk about, how much precipitation, minerals in the soil, water. I mean, there's so, but, but the difference inherent in this, in, in comparison to wine is that, and this is something Gabs and I talk about a lot, is that these plants are in the ground for a minimum of, I mean, if you want to go on the lowest end, like five or six years, right? A maximum of 25 to God knows how long. Um, so that, it's a different type of conversation when you talk about a plant living and having many, many years, possibly a decade or more in this one place. It's fantastically complex, right? In, in wine, we have this concept of vintage, the, the year in which the grapes, the fruit were, were grown and harvested. And the vintage is akin to saying, hey, in this particular year, the weather was great or it wasn't so great, but that's the way the wine tastes. When you're dealing with agave and you're dealing with a plant that takes five, six plus years, you're talking about many seasons um, and the accumulation of flavor over that time. Was there a drought during this period? Was it really sunny or really cool or was it very cold? Um, Such that it's kind of hard to parse out any particularity from a given time. Um, It's just too too complex a system. So... We're talking about the bar, we're talking about the years, we're talking about plants growing. But there's there's a decisive factor that I think is something that Sabrina and I, we've been talking a little bit, uh, Scott, that is, um, so I have heard for many mescaleros now, the timing on the unearthing or cutting the plant out, right? Picking up the piña, shaving it and getting it out. Uh and 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 being able to do it on a on a post rainy season or prior this rainy season like there there's have been this this very important talk about like you know you have this plant growing forever but if you cut it when is with all their sugars are more diluted because there has been more water then what you know like sacrificing years and years of work with a plant that might not be on the best stage and, uh, yeah. and 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 that, and that that factor in itself, you know, it goes with the hand of the maker that we can we can uh, talk a little bit about it. But I think terrar each and all the number of of items that we can talk about that will affect the growth of this plant, but also 
the decision of taking this plant, even that the quixote is ready, right? They started sprouting the quixote, you make a capon, and you're ready to get this plant out of the soil, uh, equally as important as you know the decision of how it's going to be done. And just riding on that quickly, um, a capon for everyone is when they cut the, the quixote starts shooting up from the center of the plant and they will cut it off before it has a chance to grow higher and have the flowers or inflorescence come out so that the sugars remain deep inside that piña. And sometimes you'll see more and more with like the advanced labeling that's coming out, people, uh, producers will let you know how long that plant caponed stayed in the ground. And I guess, I think Gabs, we've seen it up to two years, right? Yeah. Where they've kept this plant in the ground and the plant remains alive. Maybe it'll shoot out iwellos from from the rhizomes in the bottom base of the plant. Maybe not. Um, and but- you know what? There's a, there's I, I heard a few things and and take it as a grain of salt is not something that I'd say is absolutely sure. Uh, but the fact that the plant is decaying in ground, it starts for what I have heard some kind of fermentation. Um, makes kind of sense. That the plant is you know is, is degrading and the sugar is starting to ferment itself, but I will I will not dare to say that that is an absolute fact. It makes it, it makes if you think about it, it kind of makes sense, but right. you know who knows. But I guess Scott, like talking about this, and and you know these are just some of the beginning issues when speaking about the terroir of of an agave spirit with with wine, right? You have you have one single harvest. Uh, per year for for these vines, so it's a bit of a different conversation. Sure, where there where there are similarities is uh, in the understanding that certain species or sub varieties have preferred climates and microclimates. Just like um, Riesling is a grape that is well attuned to cooler climates in Germany and northern France. You know, um, we find that. Uh, some species of of agave are, you know, prefer certain climates or have certain geographic ranges. Uh, some are quite broad. In the case of um, Angustifolia, you know, it, with regard to espadine, we see it grown throughout uh, the bulk of Central America, including southwestern United States. Um, and then we get to, you know, more distinctive varieties like um uh, or sub-varieties like Cenizo that we really do only see in, in Durango and, and maybe a few of the surrounding states. Or, or kind so of whiskeys that, that you see in Oaxaca and Puebla, you know? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Definitely. And so so with that, you know, we talked about harvesting a little bit, and, and then we get involved in the production process of, of these spirits, which has so much to do with the toar because this is all largely natural processes happening very close, not always, but oftentimes with small producers, they're actually harvesting agaves that are fairly close by regionally. Um, And then, you know, roasting them underground, crushing them. Or above ground. Or above ground. Absolutely. Um, And then, well, with Raisia, for example, correct. Um, But then also, how long do they allow these piñas to rest in the oven, right? We've talked to producers that have three-day roasts and seven-day roasts. We've talked to producers that have the three-day roast, but then they let it rest for a week and a half or two weeks or three months. And they, you know, there's some sort of fungal like issue that starts collecting on the piñas. And so, you know, that 
has definitely something to do with the final result and product that will be bottled. Um, there's just, there's so many, there's so many variations in that regard and then it'll be crushed. Right. And the fermentation. And I think for a lot of people, fermentation is one of the largest factors. I don't know if you want to speak to that, Scott, um, with the natural yeast and. Yeah. I mean, you pointed out beautifully that, you know, terroir, this concept that there's a connection between a singular place and a singular product, um, is so hard to then delve into because of so many variables. And one of those is inevitably fermentation, where a lot of distillers would say, you know, mezcal begins with agave, but the spirit starts with fermentation. Um, is it is it stainless steel fermented? Is it uh, clay pot? Uh, or, or is it going in a tina? Is it going in um, animal skin, rawhide? Um, what is the microflora of that particular place uh, with regard to yeast, but also bacteria? Um, which can add positive or negative aromas um, because it's during this fermentation that any flavors in addition to those of the agave and the roast are going to be created. Um, you know, esters, um, which are essentially uh, these molecular components that arise out of uh, the combination of alcohol coming in contact uh, with, with air and time, um, these are formed during fermentation. Um, you know, there's a... there, are, there are so many variables, not just obviously the container, but the temperature, the length of time. Um, uh, we we that, recently that... were listening to uh, to Rio talking, Rio from from La Estancia, and he has a a Raizia, a Raizia from uh, from Nayarit, Jalisco area. Uh, and one of the things that caught my ear, it was exactly what you're saying, Scott. That is, you know, for them to maintain a, a certain flavor profile. And I haven't heard this much from, from other people uh, that does mezcal or raicilla. Um, his, uh, his production is divided in three seasons, if you want to call it, because they're so distinctive by the temperature and the taste that happens with that. You know, the, the, whatever the fermentation process changes and the yeast changes because he's surrounded by, you know, fr uh, a lot of fruit. Um, trees and 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 crops so it's very interesting because he's the only person that i have heard it say straight on that said that they have three distinct uh favorite profiles that then they blend to what you have right now in in, in their bottles and uh i don't think it applies that much to oaxaca or uh uh other well principally oaxaca and, and other states that they're not that coastal because this is specific of a region, and, and again, we, you know, talking about terroir, how it affects the production for somebody that it has to divide their production in three different distinctive flavors and then blend it. I mean, here I'll refer to, um, you know, I, I've heard similar things echoed um, uh, by Jason uh, uh, Cox uh, with regard to elevation. Uh, some of his uh, producers in Oaxaca at higher elevations. Um, I'm thinking uh, Santa Catarina Alvaradas um, uh, that use uh, tapache, that use bark, tree bark to to spur the fermentation. They might need to use more or less in a given season because yeah. they're at such a high elevation that during the evenings it gets cooler. That's obviously um, 
much more increased during cooler seasons. Such and that, that is an interesting factor be because the bark might change the flavor profile. So it's one more step added to the complexity of whatever is happening there. Absolutely. And, and here we can't negate or forget that there is, uh, to many, a belief that there is a cultural component to terroir. Yeah. Um, yes, the land will give that fruit or vegetable or agave a certain flavor profile, but it's not without human intervention. Yeah. And, and you know, the term that I was telling you early today about uh, gusto historico, the, the historical taste, uh, it, it applies exactly to that concept that is like a region has a very specific way of producing their mezcal and that's what they like and that is how it is. And, and, and you know, it, it varies from time to time. So it's, the terroir is almost like from the hand of the person that is making it. Yeah, a good example is, you know, in... in uh, Santa Catarina's Minas, there's the, this tradition, right, of clay pot distillation that is now codified as, you know, part of mezcal ancestral. You now have other producers and regions starting to do clay pot distillation, even though it was not part of their historical trajectory or anything that they did um, yeah. because they're outside that region. So, you know, they're kind of trying to uh, usurp some of this notion of a, a different place, which is hard to do. Absolutely. And I think you, you, I think this is the natural evolution of, of the category and also what the, the space has produced over, let's say the past 25 years, as it becomes more popular, as people are really investing the time to study it and to um, write really incredible articles and some good books out there about it. The more people are interested in this, you know, the 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 more possibility it's going to create for what we would call innovation. Um, now, some people that might be, I mean, I guess this kind of can relate to the world of wine when people talk about natural wine, right? Like, you know, there's so many different schools of thought. Um, the purists, whatever that means, versus, you know, the young kids that want to like switch it up and, and cause hell and, and create their own, you know, their their own way of doing things. Yeah, I kind of li like that. <laughs> <laughs> the, 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 the experimentation is necessary for the evolution, right? Yeah. Um, in Long Island, when Long Island evolved as a wine growing region, there were no grapes planted in, in the North Fork of Long Island prior to the 1970s. It was filled with uh, potato farms, of all things, um, they started planting Cabernet Sauvignon because that's what people like to drink. With little respect or understanding of what the land could absolutely produce and produce well. Now, in the last 10, 15 years, there's an understanding that it's not a climate that is acclimated to growing that particular variety well. Um, we're seeing that with, with mezcal. We don't know what can be done. Um, James uh, Schroeder in, in his Understanding Mezcal book says that a lot of the varieties or species that we think of, of being as strictly um, wild um, can, in fact, be cultivated, but no one actually ever tried. Until now. Until now. <laughs> Until yeah. now. Yeah. Um, so we're really at the, the, the infancy of, of what's going on. That that um, pauses that pauses <laughs> yeah that pauses to to a, a a question and maybe a problematic of then you know by moving these plants that they're endemic to a region that will create at a specific terroir and therefore 
a, a historical taste of making mezcal in certain way. Uh, you know, when 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 does that stops? You know, like I I'm gonna move the Karwinskis that they were specifically in 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 the region of Oaxaca and move them to anywhere else that they can grow. You know, it's it gets it gets funny, it gets interesting. Like it's I don't think I don't see agave as a crop in in most of the way. You have espadin that it has been certainly domesticated in some way or form also by understanding how the te- tequila was highly developed. I was just gonna mention the blue you know, water agave. They 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 find the gustafolia that works for the weather, that works for the region, that is extremely farmable, but also monoculture that as soon as they got one plague, you know shit went down so i don't i don't know there's there's a little bit i i think they, there's room for experimentation but there's also uh needs to be respectful a bit of of that yeah i mean i find what one of the most useful ways for me to approach agave to approach mezcal to approach putting together a portfolio of these things is to um is to look at it from angles outside of the uh, the the tunnel vision of just mezcal, right? Uh, to get outside of the mezcaleria, to get outside of the, the retail store, is what are concepts in science, in economics, in sociology, um, in social justice that we can apply? You know, some of the best uh, things I've learned about mezcal aren't from you know, bartenders or even necessarily mescaleros, the, the technical facts are there, but the useful concepts can, can be drawn from, from so many disciplines. Um, one that I found particularly illuminating and, and, and can help us kind of understand the trouble we can get, get into if, if mezcal is too successful is uh, a notion called the tragedy of the common. And um, the tragedy of the common very simply is this economic concept that um, if there is a shared or communal space, um, if it's not treated properly, it can be taken advantage of. So um, uh, if we want people to learn and enjoy mezcal, if everyone does that, everyone's drinking pachuga, well, then there's not enough pachuga drives up the price and it ruins pachuga um, and our access to it. So, um, you know, the same thing can be said with using land for agricultural purposes, which is where the tragedy of the common gets its name from. Um, so, you know, it's, these are hard things to reckon with, but they're, they're of utmost importance. You know, there is no mezcal just inside the glass. There's mezcal in the villages in the pueblas, um, in the bars, in the restaurants, in our cabinets, and it affects everything. There's also this idea that like, you know, the consumer side, the people that, um, you know, really invest a lot of time in thinking about what they're purchasing, like conscious consumerism, if you will. Um, I think that's what has sort of initiated this movement toward um, very descriptive labeling practices um, on bottles because people want this information. And, um, you know, the brands and, and the producers have responded in kind saying, We'll provide you with it largely. We'll provide you with the information because all of that information can then inform the choices, the purchase choices that that we make over here. Yeah, and, and even that is an imperfect kind of reductionist system. I, 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 
I joke and I, I, I very much adhere to that uh, system. I love transparency. I love information, but it can reduce uh, a spirit, a, a um, kind of magical product. It can reduce it to a bunch of, you know, uh, statistics. I'm really what- happy that you said that because that has been such a big point of conversation with friends of ours. Um, just, and you said it so beautifully this beverage is so much more than the, the the simple facts that you can put on a label that describe it. Although it's really interesting for us to have that because that's that's really good data and information. Um, but there's there's so much more that goes into the production and, and what ends up in that bottle that you purchase. You know, Scott sent us this amazing uh, article that we need to share. And I wanted to comment a little bit on that because it's pertinent to to the thought that we have right now. This is the Daily Beast article, Scott, um, that Jordan Salcito wrote. Uh, yeah. Bobby Stuckey. It was the interview. You know when when you were yeah. you know you start reading this and 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 of course we want the story and of course we want the tradition and of course we want to know the culture because sipping something that uh, that gives you all this extra experience and 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 becomes part of your knowledge is it makes it more delicious. Sure. But when the story is more important than what it tastes like, when the story is the selling point versus what it actually tastes like, when the whole who makes it, how he makes it, and the whole you know shebang of it, like I'm going to sell you this amazing mezcal because he's made with a guy that only has two fingers, like it gets really fucking crazy. So yeah. what I'm trying to say, like, and then you try it and it's like, yeah, I'm going to go back to my espadín. And, and, and you know, the whole, and the whole story just collapses, right? Because it, it was just a good book, but it didn't taste good. To that same point, you know, taste is a very subjective thing, right? And, and just to be clear, the article that we're discussing was about wine, not agave spirits. But I felt like, and I think the reason, Scott, that you sent it our way is because there was so much overlap in this conversation. And, and I'll post it on the, on the website so you guys can read it. It's, it's, it's brilliant. Um, but there was also a point where there is this idea that um, desirability and accessibility are, are not mutually exclusive to each other, right? So, so you can have a brand that is bottling at a certain higher price point and maybe to a, a normal average consumer, they would be like, oh, higher price point means better juice versus, oh, this is a really low price point spirit, therefore it's not going to be as good. Um, and it, it's not black and white like that at all. There are so many factors that go into play. And, and I think that that is kind of what we're speaking to. Um, the idea that in our investigation of these things that we love and we love talking about them and we love finding out more about them, there's a full story behind all of these, not just one or two facts. Yeah. I mean, it requires learning and also unlearning. You know, um, people go through phases, myself included, you know, i before I enjoyed mezcal, I enjoyed tequila. And before I enjoyed uh, some of the more esoteric species and varieties and, and, and styles, I enjoyed, you know, a basic uh, espadine. And now I've come full circle. And, and, you know, for a while, I would only drink those wild or semi-cultivated. And I would, I would you know, write off the espadine. And now I've come full circle and, and discovered espadines that I think are fantastically Absolutely. complex. Um, there's this kind of reverse snobbism. Um, that I now have for people who only drink the rare or expensive stuff. 
um, at the expense of not not taking joy in some of uh, the finer products that come from from Espadine based mezcal. Scott, I did want to ask you um, how how the evolution at T Edward is has it been stalted like um, halted at all because of the pandemic with regards to like what your projections were for this year? Um, you know, maybe bringing new brands or producers on, changing around the import, like what how have things, what do you see happening right now? Like, uh, have you changed course? Are you guys pivoting in any way? Are you kind of like staying the course and like focusing on education? Um, what's been happening? Sure. I mean, um, first, you know, the news happens at a pace that is impossible to, to keep up with. So we are constantly projecting, revising, and projecting is a very loose term. It's looking at the simplest of Excel spreadsheets and saying, how much did we sell last year? If all the restaurants that we normally work with are closed, how much did the retail stores buy? How much did our distributors in other states buy? We have seen a dramatic shift in what people are purchasing. You know, we are recording this at a time that's a few weeks prior to Cinco de Mayo, um, which at least in the United States is a big reason that people drink a lot of agave-based spirits. Whether that is the right reason is another question. Um, hmm. This should be one of the busiest times. Um, it is. It is not. People are definitely drinking those brands, at least within our portfolio, that they are most comfortable and familiar with. Those things that are kind of newer to the market or perhaps a little less familiar, and certainly those things which are less expensive are those that are being enjoyed at a quicker pace than usual but at the expense of, of almost everything else. So um, you had just mentioned that you were saying that you had read an article in, in the Mexican Forbes about um, what um, this past, what is it, quarter has looked like for importing? Yeah, uh, imports to the United States of Mezcal are down 80% when compared with a similar period from the previous year. Due to and coronavirus. I mean, that that just says everything right there. Like w there's so much uncertainty about where we're going and and what we're going to be doing in the future. But, I, you know, we have to I think that we have to keep uh, hope alive and know that, like, we are the consumers and we are very eager to continue consuming um, on on various levels. And I think that we're all just going to have to adapt to to what our needs are, although. I know that you were saying earlier, it's it's hard to know what people are going to want, right? Yeah, but now's, now's the time for all of us to figure out what we individually want, you know, to crack open those those bottles that are gathering dust or we've brought back or, or acquired to figure out the next step for ourselves individually. That no, There's no better time to, to explore, right? To take out two bottles and compare them side by side, whether they're the same species or completely different regions. Um, because, you know, when things do reopen, it can be a trickle or it can be a flood or somewhere in between. And that's going to be dependent upon what people want to do. Um, now's the time that we, we as individuals can figure that out. 
Absolutely. And, you know, this is to those of us that have access to nice kind of small bespoke liquor stores. Um, you know, you can you can hit up their websites. Um, people are pretty much running everything online now and take a risk, try something out. Um, I know I mentioned this before, but, you know, the T. Edwards website is a wonderful resource for the brands that you guys carry to learn more about that. Um, your morning show, if, if some listeners are interested in learning more about wine um, from different regions and producers that you guys carry check that out. Are you guys doing that like on a daily basis or is it sort of a couple times a week? How, how is that working out for every, you guys? Every Monday through Friday at 11 a.m. for about 15 to 20 minutes, you'll be taken into the vineyard with a winemaker um, or into a distillery with a distiller or into the winery um, and get to spend 15 minutes. And, and, you know, sometimes they're a little irreverent. We've had one winemaker, winemaker you know, take you into the vineyard and play the accordion. And we've also had, you know, uh, uh, we've had, you know, uh, to, to the point we've had a, a wonderful tequila producer who lives in Guadalajara about 40 minutes from the town of tequila that until recently couldn't get to their distillery because the roads were closed in Jalisco. Oh, wow. So, um, you know, he, he gave us a virtual tour of the distillery on his yeah. computer. So, you know, you get to dial into what people are doing in terms of making these incredible beverages um firsthand without and there's nothing that. like putting a face to the person and to the to the bottle that you're used to sipping on or interested in sipping on like it's such a wonderful it's such a wonderful thing to see you know these producers and um these people talk in person live i mean it's like a whole new it's a whole new concept because i think like before this happened like how many of us were really looking at instagram live <laughs> not me <laughs> not me. i know <laughs> Um, so that's cool. So, so guys definitely check that out. And I think like, as always, for those of you interested in going deeper, um, I recommend Mescalista's blog. They're fantastic on writing articles, kind of up to the moment information about what is new and, and happening in Mexico and also stateside. So that's a really good resource. Um, anybody have anything else they want to add? Scott, Scott mentioned before, uh, Mescal reviews. Uh, mezcal reviews on, on, uh, Instagram, um, tequila matchmaker looks at tequila through a fine lens, much like many mezcal people like to look at mezcal. Um, it examines all the kind of stats. Are they using Tahona? Are they using a diffuser? Um, so that people can really tease out some of the details of production with regard to what's going on at each, each individual distillery. It's a great agave resource. Uh, yeah, and it's a wonderful app too. Um, the design of it and everything—it's it's really accessible. Scott, I guess if somebody sees something in your website and they want to try it and they have no idea where to find it, can they can they hit you up, guys, on Instagram for questions on where to get stuff? They can hit us up on Instagram. They you, they can email me directly. I'm I've got time and I'm I'm happy to handle these inquiries. Beautiful. I mean, one one thing I've always enjoyed is being that connection between the producer and, and the end user. So honestly, you can email me at srosenbaum at, at, at tedwardwines.com and I'll, I'll put you in touch with a purveyor and uh, I'll happily tell you any details you want to know about the, the mezcal. Beautiful. Thank you so much. I think that is a very interesting thing for people to know that you're, you're willing and able to do this kind of stuff. 
Yeah, absolutely. And, and that's what makes this community um, so abundant and so so rich um, at its best. And so thank you for that. And thanks for coming on today with us. Uh, we hope to have you again uh, in some capacity. I feel like you're such a plethora of information and we just skimmed the surface. So thank you so much. Absolutely an absolute delight. Thank you both so much for the opportunity. Really appreciate it. Salut, you guys. is a production of Tuyo NYC. Brittany Prater is our editor. Your hosts are Gabrielle Velasquez-Zazueta and me, Sabrina Lassard. Our music is by Milagro Verde. Find them on Instagram at Milagro underscore Verde BK. Thanks so much for listening, everybody. Salucita. <laughs>